9-11 changed me. It changed the country. And in response, we changed the world. I don't have a sob story and I'm careful not to co-opt the tragedy of that day out of respect for those that I know and love who were personally impacted. I know a lot of them because my wife and I were newly married and living in Manhattan at the time. The resurgence of Bin Laden's letter to America on social media and the callous way young people comfortably joke about 9-11 is a reminder that we move on from everything. And one day, sooner than you might think, we'll move on from what's happening in Israel-Palestine right now. Despite the coverage on television, interest in the war is already declining on the search engines. The Mueller report was released. Trump was impeached. Hurricane Dorian obliterated the Caribbean. The Notre Dame Cathedral caught fire. A gunman massacred worshippers at the Christchurch Mosque in New Zealand and inspired a 21-year-old white nationalist to murder 23 people in El Paso, Texas. These were just in 2019. Point being, we no longer possess the ability to give a shit about all that much because we're confronted with all too much. Never forget. But we always do. I used to volunteer for a Holocaust remembrance organization. The experience helped shape me as an individual and cultivate the worldview that I hold today. The voices of the survivors I met still echo in my writing. And every year my inbox is filled with emails that begin with, we're heartbroken to announce the passing of... As the survivors of the Holocaust leave us, they leave a piece of living history behind. The survivors I met left an indelible impact on me and I wonder how they would feel about what's happening right now. They weren't monolithic in their teaching as docents, and so I imagine they would be severely conflicted. Some were devoted Zionists and harbored an unwavering hatred for the German people. Others actively sought out Islamic leadership in New York to cooperatively develop anti-bias programs. And one couple stands out in my mind. A married couple, both survivors of concentration camps who married shortly after the war. They traveled the country teaching together and promoting tolerance for all faiths and backgrounds. We wound up interviewing them at my old job and the woman's words still resonate with me. Reflecting on a life of activism and teaching, she said, my husband believes people can change. And then in a whisper, she said, but I'm not so sure. When I interviewed Professor Khalidi of Columbia University the other day, I admitted to him that the bloodlust I felt after 9-11 is still very much a part of me. Calls to carpet bomb the Middle East didn't bother me at the time. In fact, I cheerleaded it. The smell of the burning rubble as we left our apartment persisted for what seemed like forever. The shock and sadness of it all was worn on the faces of everyone we passed. It would take me years of introspection and study to move beyond these feelings and evaluate the attacks and the U.S. response to them with clear eyes. I still struggle when I see the images from 9-11, but I can divorce the visceral feelings in my gut from the perspective that is required to see the U.S. empire for what it is. I understand what the Jews of Israel feel in their bones, and Western media has done its job conveying this sentiment and keeping it alive during the bombardment in Gaza. Likewise, I understand the palpable fear and unease among Jews throughout the world who are connected to Israel in a way that few understand. Hopefully, part one of our series helped explain the sentiment buried deep within the Jewish experience. It's not just the Holocaust. Remember the statistics. 75% of Jews in the world lived within the borders of the Russian Empire by the late 1800s. Then they were forcibly dispersed despite their deep connections to the land and even their neighbors. 
the Dreyfus Affair in France demonstrated to Jews that Western Europe would offer no safe haven for them either. The Sephardic Jews in Spain were chased into the Levant by the Catholic Church, whose missionaries kept anti-Semitism alive in their doctrines. The same Catholic Church that maintained a secret back channel with Adolf Hitler's government in the 1930s and issued thousands of visas to Nazi party members after the war. As we covered, when the nations of the world were presented with the ability to offer safe harbor for Jews prior to the Holocaust, 645 German Jews found refuge in the Dominican Republic while every other nation refused. I'm reviewing this history to remind us all of the existence of Israel. It's why the build-up to this epilogue was so exhausted, though it still only scratched the surface. So often, it's the basic questions and proclamations that trip us up and the propagandized versions of history that endure. Why do Jews need their own country? Are Palestinians even a real people? Why don't the Arab nations take in the Palestinians? Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel is an apartheid state. The United States should call for a ceasefire. The United States should just stay out of it and the one that my close friend calls the shutdown argument. If it were up to the Jews, there would be a Palestinian state in the region. But if it were up to the Palestinians, there would be no Jews in the world. With the contextual episodes behind us, let's get into it. Israel's ethno-nationalism is unique and highly charged. There are nations that are predominantly one religion or ethnicity. Canada is among the most diverse of the Western nations in the world, whereas Argentina is one of the least diverse. Rwanda is near the bottom of the list, while Chad ranks among the highest in terms of cultural diversity. But Israel is an outlier in a few ways, as it's a Jewish state by national charter, but there are Arab Christians and Muslims who live within its borders. It's also true that it's rare for Jews to live in predominantly Muslim nations. After 1948, James Gelvin writes, quote, About 120,000 Iraqi Jews emigrated to Israel. They were joined by 165,000 Jews from Morocco, 88,000 from Egypt, 50,000 from Tunisia, 48,000 from Yemen, 31,000 from Libya, 15,000 from Algeria, 10,000 from Syria, and so on. Jewish communities that had existed sometimes for centuries, sometimes for millennia, disappeared seemingly overnight. By the year 2018, only about 3,500 Jews remained in the entire Arab world." End quote. Some of the Jews in the Arab nation exodus wound up in other countries, but we backstopped Gelvin's figures with Khalidis in part three, noting that 700,000 Jews immigrated to Israel after 1948, and another 700,000 immigrated over the next 15 years. Some might argue that the settler colonial activities of the Zionists created unsafe conditions for Jews in predominantly Muslim countries that viewed the encroachment on Palestinian Arab territories as an affront. Now, perhaps there's some truth to this, but to punish all Jews for what happens in Israel is exactly the definition of anti-Semitism. One of the reasons for doing the double deep dives prior to 1948 was to demonstrate that tensions between Jews and Arabs grew in parallel with Zionist activity as Christians, Jews, and Muslim Arabs lived in relative harmony under the Ottoman Empire. It's fair to point out, however, that the Nakba and the aggressive settlement expansion was a point of no return for many Arab leaders. Much of the migration was facilitated by Israel's controversial Law of Return, which allows Jews from any nation to immigrate to Israel. 
Earlier this year, the law came under scrutiny for what is known as the Grandchild Clause that allows anyone with a Jewish grandparent to obtain citizenship. Liberal Israelis have been trying to repeal this clause for years in an attempt to make citizenship and immigration more democratic in Israel. But attempts to change this ran into resistance from the Likud party and American organizations who sponsor naturalization. The process of gaining citizenship in Israel is difficult for non-Jews. Difficult, but not impossible. One must be proficient in Hebrew, have received work papers, lived in Israel for at least three years, and be willing to renounce citizenship elsewhere. It's a Byzantine process, but, you know, who are we to talk? One of the most persistent talking points is that Israel is the only democracy in the region, which is absolutely true if you're a Jewish Israeli, which I'll explain. There are several criticisms mounted against this claim, but it should be said that Israelis possess far greater freedoms than its Arab neighbors, who operate sometimes brutal regimes that are hostile towards LGBTQ communities and women and basic civil liberties like freedom of speech and religion. So comparatively speaking, this needs to be factored into the equation. Apart from the obvious nightmarish existence in the occupied territories, when people speak out against anti-democratic measures in Israel, they're sometimes referring to discriminatory practices codified into law against non-Jewish residents and citizens within Israel's borders. For example, the Knesset's recent actions to make Israel's Supreme Court subservient to the legislature caused an uproar among Israelis and put Netanyahu's new ultra-conservative coalition on the defensive. In terms of the discriminatory codes, the Council on Foreign Relations points to a database of 65 Israeli laws or codes that are considered discriminatory toward the Arab population of Israel. According to the CFR, these codes manifest in ways that promote socioeconomic disparity between Jewish and Arab populations, such as education assistance and discounts for permits for Jews only. Furthermore, similar to the way redlining in the United States has created permanent blocks of poverty, Arabs in Israel are poorer, possess lower levels of education due to underfunded schools, and receive inferior municipal services. These are the soft metrics that aren't spoken about in the discourse. There are also fewer rights afforded to Arab residents designated as permanent residents, most notably in East Jerusalem, and who are blocked from obtaining full citizenship. So while it's true that around 20% of Israeli citizens are Arab and are represented in the Knesset, they're a minority with no real ability to exercise power, especially in an increasingly far-right governing body. Within the occupied territories, things are far more precarious. According to Human Rights Watch, quote, in the West Bank, authorities have confiscated more than two million dunams of land from Palestinians, making up more than one-third of the West Bank, including tens of thousands of dunams that they acknowledge are privately owned by Palestinians. One common tactic they have used is to declare territory, including privately owned Palestinian land, as quote, state land. The Israeli group Peace Now estimates that the Israeli government has designated about 1.4 million dunams of land, or about a quarter of the West Bank, as state land. The group has also found that more than 30% of the land used for settlements is acknowledged by the Israeli government as having been privately owned by Palestinians, end quote. When Israeli settlements were evacuated in Gaza, it left the territory isolated from Israeli governance and placed it under full military occupation. This isolation led to the surprise victory of Hamas in 2006, which was formed in defiance of the PLO's acquiescence to UN Resolution 242 during the Oslo Accords. 
Since gaining the majority and declaring itself independent of the Palestinian Authority, Hamas has turned increasingly militant, and there have been no elections since they came to power. As we mentioned in Part 3, the Likud Party initially supported Hamas, as did the other Arab states. The Likud Party wanted to split the allegiances of the Palestinian people to minimize the political power of the PLO in the Palestinian Authority, and Arab nations saw Hamas as freedom-fighting liberators. Hamas would use the funding and support from Arab nations to build social institutions in the public eye while building an armed militant group of up to 40,000 paramilitary fighters, according to experts. So if we examine the territories from a top-level perspective, you can begin to conceptualize the stranglehold over the Palestinian territories. The Western narrative is that the West Bank is more stable and perhaps holds promise for statehood. But with more than one quarter of the West Bank now controlled by the Israeli government, and Israeli settlements interconnected throughout the territory, it's highly unlikely that the West Bank could simply split from Israel. Moreover, as we covered in Part 3, the water supply and electric grid have been taken over by the government, so pulling this apart would be structurally difficult, if not impossible. In our interview, Khalidi recalled a time in the not-so-distant past when residents in the West Bank could travel freely throughout the whole of Palestine and even go to the beaches in Israel. And that's no longer the case. Mobility has been severely restricted and there are multiple checkpoints throughout Israel and the West Bank. Moreover, with most of northern Gaza reduced to rubble now and Netanyahu declaring full occupation for the foreseeable future, it's inconceivable at this point that any serious attempt to rebuild a life in Gaza will occur. When the war in Ukraine broke out, I lost several listeners who were incensed at my take on the conflict. Personally, I think it's aged well. My argument was that the United States was defending Ukraine, quote, down to the last Ukrainian, which has since become a familiar, sarcastic refrain. By not demanding that the EU and China join us in a call for diplomatic resolution, it would only serve to destroy Ukraine slowly. Having Russia emerge as the bad guy in the international stage, served only our anachronistic Cold War foreign policy views and is based on the fear of not looking strong in the face of Russian aggression. My assessment hasn't changed and carries over to the assault on Gaza in response to Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel. You don't have to like anyone involved in the conflict to understand that we wield tremendous influence over the world affairs with veto power in the United Nations, the ability to impose brutal sanctions and to leverage our exorbitant foreign aid for positive outcomes but we're simply not built that way. The last president in the United States to threaten Israel over settlements was George H.W. Bush. Since then, the U.S. government has issued a blank check to Israel, though President Obama attempted to appear stern in the face of Netanyahu's aggressive settlement stance. So does Israel have a right to defend itself? Sure, but this is where the dialogue deteriorates rapidly and the Israeli government knows this. In fact, it depends on it. It took me about 20,000 words to contextualize the Palestinian situation in a way that my Western eyes and ears could absorb it. But how many people are really paying attention beyond the headlines? Prior to October 7, the Israeli government response to Hamas missiles from Gaza or just kids throwing rocks has been brutally asymmetric. But it has always been able to throw it back to Americans especially and say, well, what are we supposed to do? Do we not have a right to defend ourselves? 
But when the world saw footage of Israeli soldiers firing indiscriminately at Palestinian protesters in 2018, something changed. Years of progressives demanding an end to the occupation, a younger generation more attuned to Palestinian suffering than historic Jewish suffering, and the rise of social media began shifting the narrative. In our episode on the divide between black and Jewish Americans, we talked about Zionist and progressive lines in the sand and how it was creating an unhealthy dialogue. By pinning the fate of Israel to Jews around the world, it's created a rift between Zionists, who defend Israel above all else, and secular Jews, who are conflicted about Israel's actions. Forget about the Christian evangelicals and their need to stand on the shoulders of dead Jews to be seen by God in the fucking rapture. This is a crisis of Jewish identity in the United States. Likewise, it's created an even greater divide between Jewish people and black and brown Americans who find Israel's colonial attitude toward the Palestinians familiar. We can laugh off Kanye's meltdown or ignore Kyrie Irving's blatant anti-Semitic attitude, but we can't ignore the underpinnings of the sentiment. Black and brown Americans have been watching and sharing horrifying social media accounts of Israel's brutality for years. They see a predominantly white authoritarian government indiscriminately engage in collective punishment against brown people. For the same reason Martin Luther King Jr. split from LBJ over the war in Vietnam, black and brown Americans are leaving Joe Biden over his refusal to acknowledge the suffering of Palestinians. This has led to a further fracture among liberals and progressives who are also hardening their positions. You can't be a true progressive if you believe Israel has a right to build an ethnic national state. You have to be 100% against Israel always. Well, this has caused a rift between liberal Democrats and progressives, similar to the split between Zionists and secular Jews. Some might rightfully question what all of this has to do with the United States. So hopefully it was clear in our prior episodes that the United States has firmly planted its flag on the side of Israel for a few reasons, and that without our support, it's likely that the Zionist experiment might have been very different or even failed outright. Now, I get it, the rationale behind our alliance is still a bit murky. I mean, it partly developed out of the Cold War when Russia threw its weight behind Egypt, even President Truman was hesitant about statehood for Israel and was in fact quite callous about the whole thing. But between guilt over the Holocaust and pressure from administration officials who pressed for a Jewish state and the fact that we were unwilling to absorb Jewish refugees, it became the politically expedient thing for Truman to do. After 1948, Jewish institutions emerged and began to close ranks. They raised significant sums of money for Jewish refugee settlement and to build the Israeli political and military apparatus. American Jews finally had a way to support their fellow Jews. And for the first few decades, it felt entirely righteous to back the state of Israel as it clashed with Arab nations in the region. Israel needed us, and we needed an ally in the region as a bulwark against the communists, or so the story went. And since Europe abandoned the Palestinian people and left them without a state, we had no other diplomatic considerations in the region beyond Israel and nations that we sought to partner with for oil. But with the hard right turn of Israeli politics in the 1970s through Israel's invasion of Lebanon, the situation quickly evolved. It pursued settlements in the occupied territories in defiance of U.S. wishes. It tested a nuclear bomb in the South Atlantic without notifying the Carter administration in 1979 in what became known as the Vela Incident. Had Carter been re-elected, relations between the U.S. and Israel may have soured. 
but the Reagan administration fully embraced the far-right policies of the Likud party and, but for a brief moment under Bush Sr. and limited tension between Obama and Netanyahu, the Israel-U.S. alliance has been solid ever since. Thus, while segments of the U.S. population have begun to question this relationship or decry it in some circles, U.S. policy hasn't budged. And then... Tonight, months of escalating tensions between Israelis and Palestinians have erupted into a firestorm. In an unprecedented surprise attack, the militant Hamas rulers of Gaza sent dozens of fighters into Israel by land, sea, and air. Gun battles raged for hours in communities across southern Israel, and officials on both sides say Israeli soldiers and civilians are now captives in Gaza. The horrific attack on Israeli civilians stunned the world. We're all now familiar with these events and what happened after. Less talked about is what Professor Khalidi highlighted within Israel. After the initial shock, there was obviously sadness and devastation, but Israel's media reported the anger that followed in a different way than most Western outlets. Israelis didn't need more ammunition to hate Hamas. Their anger turned toward their prime minister. Already unpopular and clinging to a far-right coalition that frustrated Israeli civilians, the only thing Netanyahu had left in his arsenal of credibility was security. If nothing else, he was the one who made good on his promise to keep Israelis safe. He was Jack Nicholson and a few good men, the guy on the wall that you ignore, but you're sure glad he's there to defend you. And then, in a moment, in an instant, the sheen was off, and rage flowed in the streets of Israel alongside pain and sorrow. It was a betrayal of the highest order. The vaunted intelligence apparatus and unbeatable IDF had failed on a colossal scale, and now Israelis live in daily fear. And that fear has unlocked that dormant but never dead piece of Jewish consciousness around the world. To reclaim its authority and cover for the shame of this failure, Israel is mounting a campaign of ethnic cleansing in Gaza a term I'll unpack more in a bit, but that's not the only focus of their revenge. The Associated Press reported this week that in the West Bank, quote, in six weeks, settlers have killed nine Palestinians, said Palestinian health authorities. They've destroyed 3,000 plus olive trees during the crucial harvest season, said Palestinian Authority official Ghassan Douglas, wiping out for what some were inheritances passed through generations and they've harassed herding communities, forcing over 900 people to abandon 15 hamlets they long called home, the UN said." End quote. Nowhere is safe in Israel or Palestine right now, and we are doing nothing to prevent either the massacre of Palestinian civilians or to assuage the fears of Israelis by showing diplomatic strength in the region. We're letting it all play out. And so here's how this is going to end. There will be no Gaza. It will be uninhabitable, and there will be a refugee crisis in the bombed-out south of Gaza, in the Sinai, and wherever else Palestinians can flee. From here, any number of events can transpire. As we've established, the neighboring Arab countries are in no position to absorb a million Palestinian refugees. Egypt is balked at the idea. Syria is barely a country with 7 out of 10 Syrians in need of humanitarian assistance and 5.2 million refugees in the region. Lebanon remains in an economic crisis with a 98% devaluation of its currency and inflation in triple digits. 
And as Professor Khalidi stated, Jordan is little more than an impoverished desert territory with a corrupt monarchy that operates a police state. Those who suggest that the Palestinians should simply give up the cause and migrate to these other nations are blindly out of touch and don't understand the dynamics of the region. As for Palestinians of the West Bank, the future looks just as bleak, just a little further down the road. As we stated, fully one quarter of their territory has been illegally claimed and occupied by Israel, which also maintains a stranglehold over economic activity and mobility alike. The walls are closing in on all sides, and the United States will sit idly by while it happens. If our intransigence costs the Democrats the election, they have only themselves to blame. Moreover, it will be the frying pan into the fire for Palestinians if Donald Trump reclaims the presidency. At that point, all bets are off, and the bloodthirst of the evangelicals will prevail in foreign policy, and Jared Kushner will attend the ribbon-cutting right alongside Benjamin Netanyahu as it forecloses on all of the occupied territories. But isn't it possible that the Arab world intervenes bringing about World War III? I doubt it. It's highly likely that there will be battles and skirmishes. There will be terrorist activity the world over in the name of the Palestinian refugees and the martyred. Arab states will reconsider normalization with Israel, and the United States may even be drawn into conflict, especially under another Trump regime. But don't expect the Arab nations to suddenly coalesce, put their historic differences aside, and collectively declare war on the state of Israel. Now, all we have to look forward to is terrorism and acts of violence and vengeance. And then, somewhere down the road, in the not-too-distant future, we'll forget. Because we always do. We'll recalibrate to the new normal, give up more of our civil liberties, double down on false narratives, and convince ourselves there was nothing that we could do. Here are some other unpopular proclamations. Zionism will have unintentionally made the world more dangerous for Jews, just like Leon Trotsky said. The Palestinian people will be lost to history within a generation. Climate change will make this part of the world increasingly unstable and therefore uninhabitable, creating a refugee crisis that will make the Palestinian crisis look small in comparison. Was this avoidable? Much of it, perhaps. There were competing visions along the way that capitalism and imperialism wouldn't allow for. So bear with me as I thread a few passages from essays written by Moshe Makaver, the last living member of the Israeli socialist organization, Matzpin. At 87, he remains one of the most outspoken Israelis against the Zionist project. Makaver foresaw what would happen and campaigned for a socialist revolution that would result in a one-state solution, quote, accommodating both national groups within the regional federal union. The Palestinian Arab people will take its place alongside the other components of the Arab nation. And the Israeli Hebrews can be offered equal membership with full national rights, on similar terms as the other non-Arab nationalities located within the Arab world, Kurds, South Sudanese. Will the disposition envisaged here be a one-state or a two-state setup? It will be both and it will be neither. It will be a one-state setup in the sense that both national groups will be accommodated as federated members in one state. 
But that one state will not be Palestine. It will be a regional union. And it will be a two-state setup in the sense that each of the two national groups will have its own canton in the Swiss sense, or land in the federal German sense, where it constitutes a majority of the population. Finally, Arab and Israeli socialists have a special historical responsibility. A revolution doesn't happen itself. And when it does break out, it can take a disastrous turn if it's hijacked by regressive forces. In order to ensure that an Arab revolution can resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the benign way envisaged here, we must start working and organizing now in a democratic and non-sectarian way. We must closely coordinate our thinking, strategy, and activity, and form organizational links on a regional scale, prefiguring the future in the present." End quote. Now, people close to me <laughs> have suggested that maybe I went a little too deep this summer in exploring the history of socialism. I disagree. Our job is not just to rail against what is, but to explore what can be. Palestine, the Levant, the Fertile Crescent, the Ottoman Empire, Arabia, whatever you want to call it, wasn't meant to be carved into pieces in smoky back rooms in London or Paris. The culture never fit neatly into imperial designs. The Western world has spent more than a century trying to bend this part of the world to its will and put square pegs in round holes in the desert. It never worked and it never will. The great tragedy is that there were visions, democratic socialist visions, that recognized the distinct cultures and religions and valued the inputs of the laboring class. The British and French saw what could be pillaged from the land and the strategic importance of the ports. The Americans saw what could be pillaged from beneath the land and stepped into the shoes of the frail European economies after World War II. We see, we rape, we leave you for dead. That's what capitalism demands. All for us, none for you. Rosa Luxemburg understood this and was killed for it. I'll finish by clarifying something I struggled with in show notes recently when challenged by a listener to commit to certain language when describing the assault on Gaza. She said there's no recognized international human rights definition of ethnic cleansing, but there is one for genocide. Well, she's right. Article 2 of the Genocide Convention states that it must meet two standards, one mental and one physical. The mental element must contain, quote, the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. The physical includes five acts. Killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to the members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The UN referred to northern Gaza as a children's graveyard. According to the Associated Press, the Gazan Health Ministry no longer has the ability to even track the death toll, leaving it, as of this recording, just north of 11,000 Gazans, one in 200 civilians, nearly half of whom are children. And that's already out of a population where half are under the age of 18. 
Language is important. And so I think it's entirely accurate to call this an unfolding genocide, with the exception of imposing measures intended to prevent births. I guess. Four out of five. The other night on CNN, Rami Igra, a former chief of the Mossad, told Anderson Cooper, quote, the non-combative population in the Gaza Strip is really a non-existent term because all the Gazans voted for the Hamas. And as we have seen on the 7th of October, most of the population in the Gaza Strip are Hamas, end quote. Cooper had no follow-up question. None. It's this type of uncritical coverage that will allow for this to play out to its full conclusion in Gaza. Anderson Cooper can muster up crocodile tears on an almost weekly fucking basis. So how come he's not coming apart at the seams over the fact that now 53 of his fellow journalists have been killed in the conflict? How has the entire media apparatus of the world not called for a general strike to protest the killing of journalists at a minimum? The most ever recorded during a conflict and we're still only several weeks into it. Why? Because they have names like Mohammed Abu Hateb, Nasmi al-Nadim, Ahmed al-Kara, Mustafa al-Sawaf, Yaniv Zohar, Shai Ragev, and Ahmad Shabab. Real names of real journalists, and there are dozens more of them. Different from yours and mine, and therefore meaningless. Now I come back to where I started, in the introduction to this whole series. This is what you get is not the same thing as this is what you deserve. The Israeli citizens didn't deserve to be murdered in cold blood by Hamas. The Palestinians in Gaza don't deserve to be systematically annihilated. Israel doesn't deserve to be represented by the likes of Netanyahu or Ben Gavir. None of us deserves the terrorism, war, and refugee crisis that is yet to come. But it is what we get when we value commodities over babies, land claims over human rights, and capitalism over everything. <laughs>